This is the No Nonsense Agile Podcast. Join us for weekly discussions on agile, product development, and leadership with world-class experts who provide valuable insights and practical advice for industry professionals. Subscribe now to learn the latest trends and best practices in the field. In this episode, we talk to Howard Pedeswa about agile business analysis. What do business analysts do? What's its value? Why are big requirements up front a bad idea? And how do we do business analysis in an agile way? How do we do use cases and user story maps? And how do we break them down into user stories? What's the relationship with the product owner? Business analysts is a critical skill that every development team needs to understand and prioritize their work. It's time to bring back business analysis. Welcome to the No Nonsense Agile Podcast. I'm Shane Gibson. And I'm Murray Robinson. And I'm Howard Pedeswa. Hi, Howard. Thanks for coming on today. We want to talk to you about agile business analysis. Why don't you kick us off by telling us about who you are and what your background and experience is? Sure. The Mixture of Agile Business Analysis is something that I have been doing since the 90s when both Agile and Business Analysis came to the fore. I started out on the techie side. In fact, I was actually trained uh, as a chemical engineer with a specialty in nuclear engineering. My first job was with Atomic Energy of Canada. I wasn't meant to actually go into IT at all. <laughs> I took just one programming course. But my first job with Atomic Energy was working on a simulation program to determine what would happen in the case of a nuclear accident. And uh, I really found the programming aspect of that much more interesting to me than the heat and mass transfer calculations that were also part of all of that. And so that's what actually got me into programming. Initially, it was a lot of technical stuff. I worked on the first kicks system done in COBOL. It was one of the first interactive applications using mainframe. So it was really very exciting stuff to work on, very groundbreaking. I've done a lot of those kinds of things. I worked on writing an intranet package from scratch to get many computers to talk to each other, food testing, various applications like that. When business analysis came about in the 90s, I got very interested because I found that I was often frustrated on the development side when you know the answers. You might hit it as a developer when you're designing tables, for example, and you don't know whether it's a one-to-many relationship or a one-to-one relationship, and you realize there were some really basic questions that somebody could have asked. It really occurred to me back then that if we could take the tools and models and techniques that we used on the architecture and systems analysis side and use them from the perspective of understanding the actual business itself, that we would actually save a lot of time due to misunderstandings and mistakes. These are powerful tools that actually were being introduced too late into the life cycle. So the moment I saw BA coming out as a job role, I got very interested in it. One of the first jobs I had was to actually coach Bell Canada teams in the use of business analysis techniques within the context of iterative incremental development. So this was in the 90s when large companies, Bell is a telecom company, if they were going to try to do anything agile, they would use something like RUP, the Rational Unified Process, which was a little bit easier on them than something like XP, Extreme Programming. So I started to specialize in helping companies figure out that piece. How do we do the analysis piece when we are doing agile development, when the development is iterative and incremental, where we don't actually gather all the requirements up front, but we gather them and discover them piece by piece a little bit at a time as we go. There was a lot of 
guidance to the technical people about how they did their part of the job. But this aspect, this piece of the puzzle was not very well understood. So I work with various companies on this part of it. A lot of them were banks initially, like the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, that's CIBC. I've done work for Scotiabank, Telus, another telecom company, which was the first company that came to me and said, we are going agile all in, not just a few groups here and there. Around 2013 is when my clients were starting to go all in on it. I was hearing from them that the developers just talk directly to the customer and nobody writes anything down. So it looks to me like there should be nothing for the BAs to do. What should I do with my business analysts? This is the question that I was getting. I told them at the time that the work that those BAs were doing is never going to go away. The need for somebody to really understand a business problem and be able to explain to developers is something that's still going to be important. And the techniques that are used to understand business rules and understand stakeholders are still going to be important. They're going to be done a different way, but you're still going to need them. And I think that's still true today. Business analysis is still being done today. Whether or not the role is called a business analyst, though, is something else. In my experience, the companies that used to have business analysts, when they've transitioned to Agile, have not gotten rid of their BAs. Sometimes they've told the teams, it's up to you. You decide if you want to put some BAs in there. Sometimes the teams have responded by saying, we'll throw some BAs in and see what happens. In every case, they've actually proved their value and they've decided they're better off with business analysts than they are without them. Now, to me, I don't really care if you call that person a BA or call that person a product owner, as long as there's somebody who actually understands the competency and knows how to do it and do it well. But I am finding in general that BAs haven't gone away. Now, where you don't see them though are in small startup companies, which have other roles that do something similar. Even there, though, once those companies mature, we're starting to find that they're bringing back either the competency or the actual role itself. Do you find that requirements are being done better in agile teams than they were in the traditional Bayes-gated waterfall projects? Well, what do you mean by better? Let's say you replace an existing application, and the only thing that's wrong with your existing application is the technology is out of date and you need new technology. Your requirements are quite well known in, in a circumstance like that. There's very little uncertainty. If you're purchasing a new system, there's a huge financial risk. If you actually get the requirements wrong and end up buying the wrong product, so in a situation like that, you're much better off, in my view, to do a very thorough requirements analysis up front. So I'd say in a situation like that, no, I don't think Agile will give you a better result. On the other hand, if you're in a situation where there's uncertainty about the requirements, you're way better off doing it in an agile way because you don't really know in the beginning which of the features that you're thinking about are going to actually be the most valuable until you get into it. And so if you end up figuring out in theory what all your requirements are going to be up front, you may find out that a good chunk of those are actually not going to be useful or valuable and that you've actually wasted a lot of your time in, in doing that. And so you're much better off doing a little bit at a time, testing it out with your customer base, taking measurements so that you're actually data informed and letting that drive the development. The approach that we advocate these days is hypothesis testing. Think about the features that you're considering as a hypothesis. You hypothesize that they actually have value and then design a little test to show that they do have value. Yeah. Couple of things there. I became a BA in the 90s and did it for 12 years before moving into project management and mm. product management. First thing was there was no training at all. It was a job that you got because you were smart and analytical and you could yeah. talk to people. Yeah. And yeah. you'd be given a document template, you're yeah. told, go and fill this out. Yeah. It would have things like project name, objectives. Yeah. users, yeah. 
functional requirements, non-functional requirements, all that sort of stuff. I got into the writing business, Murray, because of that exact problem. I was coaching a group of social workers, and they were about to become business analysts because they were experts on the system that was being developed. They figured they may as well turn them into BAs. They came for a QA course to get some training in QA, and I found out quickly that they needed a lot more and realized that the training was really inadequate in this area. Do you find that happens a lot still? People confuse subject matter expertise with the skills and competency required to understand business process and analyze it. Think of it like this. Could you explain to somebody how to tie a necktie? You can do it. You're great at it. But if you have to actually explain what you do to somebody else, you may have some problem there. Now, this is the position that every user is when they're trying to explain what they do to developers in a way that the developers will not misunderstand what they're talking about. It takes a certain type of person who is really good at analyzing all those little decisions that you often do unconsciously to explain it to a developer. So there's lots of tricks and techniques that business analysts have learned over time to be able to do things like that. Things like business rules analysis and using things like decision tables. These are little tricks that take complicated problems and turn them into a series of very simple problems. Yeah, I see it as being a translator between the developers and the users. But it's almost more than that because you're sometimes even translating it to the users themselves. You're a little bit like a psychoanalyst. There are (laughs) things that you do unconsciously. You have unconscious needs and desires that are motivating you, but you can't necessarily articulate them. And with the help of an analyst, you can bring that into consciousness and so that you can explain it to somebody else. Yeah, that's true. There's a lot of mapping out of stuff first we do this and then we do that and then the other thing and you're drawing circles on whiteboards with arrows going between them so you know i kept a record of all the kinds of questions that people were asking me as i was and from that i wrote a book uml for the it business analyst it was an attempt to take the unified modeling language which was actually driven by use cases and apply it to the business analysis side and since then i've been working with labcore statoil covans food and drug administration It's a pretty broad array, and these are all organizations that are doing some combination of business analysis and Agile. Do you see UML diagrams being used a lot in Agile teams anymore? Because I don't. I'd like to see them being used more, but no, not that much. It's kind of been a user story. They've replaced a diagram with a bunch of words. There is diagramming going on, but not so much the UML diagramming. Use case diagrams, yes, I am seeing that in places where people are still using use cases. It's a very simple diagram, so I don't even know why people consider that to be extra overhead. It really isn't. It's a two-second thing with stick figures and an oval, for God's sakes. It's not really very much. The class diagrams, which were a really heavy part of my UML book, are not being heavily used at the business analysis side to understand the business problem. I wish they were more. There's a misconception that they're technical diagrams and therefore should not be used to understand the business and should not be used by non-business people. Oh, by the way, I just want to go back to another question though that, that you mentioned, Shane, about taking subject matter experts as business analysts and making that confusion. I just wanted to say, I don't think they're the same thing, but I do think the following is very important. And it's actually why I've always advocated for business analysis as a role. I find that the best organizations have about a 50-50 mix of BAs who came from the technical side and learned the business side, and the other 50% are people who actually came from the business side and learned the BA part in order to round themselves out. When I started as a systems analyst, it was my job to speak to the users. So this is actually how it used to be for me 
back in the old days. The trouble with that is that in order to do that job, you had to be somebody who had really high technical competencies as well as very high people skills and those analytical competencies that have to do with business analysis. It was very rare to find those in one person. And I don't think that you should have to. Some of the best programmers that I've seen in my life have horrible people skills. I would not fire them. I would keep them on because they're worth 100 programmers as one of them. If you're going to require that person to also be a people person, that's going to be a problem. At the same time, you have all these great people who actually understand the business, who do have core analytical abilities that can be developed. And so they make great BAs. So I like the mix. I like having a mix of both of those kinds as BAs. Yeah, I agree. I'm a great fan of T-shaped people and talking about skills, not roles. We look at a matrix that we typically have on the left-hand side, facilitation, analysis type skills. Mm -hmm. In the middle, we typically have engineering, development, system skills. And on the right, we have the kind of wash up, release, documentation. If you think about that matrix and people skills being strong, when they go down the page. Flip it on the side, we'll often see T-shapes. We sometimes see C-shapes and then we get the Nirvana E-shape. I'm wondering what you think a systems analyst is. In my day, it was an architecture job. You'd be working out the architecture of the system, working out what all the pieces are and how they spoke to each other and all the way down to writing detailed technical specifications for the various modules, and then the programmers would write to spec. They'd write the pieces. That's how it used to be. I have done both of these roles, and the systems analysis side of it seems to me where you create class diagrams and you say you need to have this table and they have a many to one and so on. But I would go as far as that. I would never go as far as saying that we need to use this systems architecture pattern or component because I wasn't that technical. Not as far as saying I need a routine that passes these parameters and here's the logic and you write it for me. Yeah, I would occasionally do that too. So I guess that's systems analysis. I think these days you normally have a technical leader or somebody in the team who would take it to that next level. So yeah, I'm not finding class diagrams being used for conceptual modeling, although I think they should be. I think they're brilliant. I've seen amazing requirements mistakes either made or fixed because of doing that. I'll give you a very simple example. I was speaking to a group who worked for the government, was talking about this very topic. And I said, so let's just discuss, as an example, a system that you've just been working on. All right, it's an HR system. All right, so tell me a little bit about it. We start talking. They've got to keep track of unions and union members and the employees who belong to unions. And said, oh, okay, all right. So you just mentioned a union and you mentioned employee to me. So let me just draw a little box here. How many employees per union? How many unions per employee? That's a question you would ask very quickly using that method. They started to get very embarrassed by this question. So why are you embarrassed? It's funny you should ask this question because we just bought the system. And the one thing the system doesn't do is it assumes that every employee can only belong to one union. And in fact, we have employees who belong to multiple unions and it's costing us a fortune now to fix the database. (laughs) If they just asked a simple question before they had committed themselves to the system, they would have saved themselves lots of time and money. In the product world, we see a pattern around wireframing, around prototyping and tools like Figma, Mm -hmm. where we draw the screens first to get some feedback Mm -hmm. about whether they're going to meet our needs. And those diagrams you talk about are just the same pattern. We're drawing some pictures to see whether we understand the problem, whether there's some 
weird use case in there that we've never seen before that's going to bite our bum to use it as a mm-hmm. language where we can look at it and go, yep, that's what we mean. It even helps you understand the business language itself. I was dealing with a group of people doing a project for Portugal Telecom a number of years ago, and they kept talking about blah, 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 product group. This word product group kept coming up. And the way that they used the term, I'd assume that they meant when they sell you your telephone number, and then along with that, you get a call answer and various other things. And that whole package is the product group. So I just asked the stakeholders, uh, how many people understand product group that way? And about half the people put up their hand and half the group put up their hand and said, no, it's something else entirely. It's got nothing to do with the way we market it. It's just your particular line and all the services you have attached to your line, regardless of how it was marketed. That's the product group. And it came about when I started to do this many-to-many question. How many groups per person, this for that? I realized, oh my goodness, we could have gone on for who knows how long talking about product groups and having no idea what this business concept really means. I did it with the government when they were doing a project to consolidate payables, uh, what they owe citizens and what citizens owe them and to make sure that they're not giving citizens money when they actually owe them money because of fines or whatever. And there were all sorts of financial terms in there that I didn't understand, but it was through modeling that I actually got a precise understanding of what all those things were. So I think it's a very, very powerful tool for understanding business rules, for understanding concepts and making sure everybody understands it in the same way. And you end up with a diagram that you can give to a developer. And even though it's a conceptual model, it's actually pretty darn close to what the data model should look like. So you're handing it to them on a silver platter. I've always found that once I explained to teams that this type of model being drawn by a BA is not meant to tell them how to design the data tables. It's a conceptual model. They relaxed and we were able to get it through, but I can't talk to every team on the planet to make this case. So anyway, that's my case for that. But I should say that other types of diagrams, like activity diagrams are part of the UML. They did not become popular. However, business process model have become popular and agile or not, they're still remain popular. As a matter of fact, the first step in building a story map would be to either do some sort of value stream mapping or to do a business process model. And that's how you actually determine what that map is even going to look like. So I think it's still quite valuable. Yeah. So we've ended up talking about what are the skills of business analysis, whether you call that person a BA or not, what are the skills? And so far we've talked about understanding the business, understanding the technical people, a lot of facilitation, elicitation skills, helping Mm -hmm. the users to understand what they're talking about, what it is, helping to define key terms and key concepts, helping to define business rules, mapping out business processes, defining what they should be in actual maps. Quite a lot of mapping, like class diagrams and so on. And then there's usually a ton of text that goes with it as some sort of explanation. And I remember when I was doing this in the old days, I would be given three months to produce Mm -hmm. a business requirements document, eight weeks to write it, and it'd be about 80 to 100 pages. And then they'd go through a four-week iterative review. That's not happening now. That's not happening in an NFL context. The way it's now being done, it's quite different. In other words, first of all, you remember lots and lots of text. I'm not saying we don't have to write anymore. That's totally not true. People misunderstand the Agile Manifesto. It's obviously more important to get working software out than it is to get documentation out. But that doesn't mean there's no value to documentation. Documentation has great value. Primarily for an Agile context, the value is the next time you go to fix that system, the understanding about that system is there. 
you know, what to build on. There isn't as much need to write everything down as there was in the past. And part of it has to do with the time factor. In the past, when we wrote everything down, when you did it, Murray, back in the day, you'd write all that down. But by the time somebody would actually get to coding it, there'd be quite a time lag between those two points. Yep. In an agile environment, that's not the case. When you find out some detailed requirement, the time lag for that actually getting coded is quite small. In the sprint beforehand, you clarified some requirements, maybe a week before the sprint began, and then the sprint starts and people are coding it already. So it's already in your mind, and so there's not as much need to get absolutely everything down. Secondly, if we're working in an agile manner, we want to leave flexibility for the requirements to change. And one of the reasons we were so specific in the old days, because I used to always tell my clients, that if you don't write it down, they're going to tell you it wasn't part of the contract. Oh, it'll get done, all right. You just got to pay extra for it. It wasn't in the specs, right? So uh, you write it down, there'll be no argument, right? We would say that to people. And then your stakeholders would tell you everything that they ever imagined that could go yes. into the system because yeah. it was their one opportunity yeah. to yeah. get something done. The next yeah. time would be six or seven years later when the yeah. system was redone. So they would Can't tell blame. you everything that they Can't possibly blame. imagined. And then you'd go through this Moscow prioritization method and they'd yeah. say yeah. 80% was mandatory. Yeah. And so you always ended up with something which was really very gold-plated. Absolutely. The beauty of it now is that I can replace a lot of those arguments with sequencing arguments. Instead of saying, is this a must-have or a should-have, I just say, should we do this first or should we do this second? We have to solve a practical problem. We're doing iterative development. A little bit at a time is going to come online. What sequence would you like us to do that in? And suddenly we're solving a problem together. The other problem we had was I was probably about 70% right with the requirements and about 30% wrong. I don't mean that somebody would tell me something, I'd write it down wrong. I mean that we as an organization were simply wrong about what was required. We quite often miss something quite important, which we would discover during development, or a whole lot of things would get de-scoped. That was very common. A lot of things and requirements would just get cut out because you were running over budget. When I'm talking to people who are still doing this, I say, look, it's good to have all this context and background and everything for the development team, but you just got to assume that you're going to find during development and testing that a reasonable amount of it is wrong. So you're wasting a lot of time and effort by writing it all down up front because a fair bit of it's going to change. Exactly. So now that's why the, basically the two principles are you do the least amount of writing that you can get away with without causing yeah. harm. And you wait to the last responsible moment to do anything, including analyzing the requirements for a feature. If you're looking at a story and you're using two-week sprint, and somewhere around about halfway into the previous sprint, you're looking ahead down the product backlog at the upcoming stories that are likely to get done in the next sprint, and you're starting to analyze them. And you're not pre-analyzing too much before that. And in terms of larger features, a feature could be something that might take up to even three months to get done. About halfway into the previous release cycle, you're starting to look at those features and starting to consider them and starting to look at breaking some of them up into some of the first stories that you're going to be developing. Let me talk through some of the problems I've seen with agile teams doing mm -hmm. business analysis. One is 
that there's no BA. The assumption is that the product owner is going to do that role, generally speaking. Big problem. And they've never done it before frequently. People don't know how to do it. It's not even recognized that it needs to be done, except as write me some Jira stories. And you know why that's happened? It's because of a book called Agile Software Development with Scrum, written by Ken Schwaber and Mike Beadle. The only reference to requirements analysis of any kind in this book is on one page where he says people do too much of it. So it's almost oh, a product backlog just is born, filled with all these product backlog items. Yeah. So first of all, a lot of people don't do it. And then they run into a lot of problems because they're not doing any analysis. The second thing I see a lot of, Howard, is a great deal of confusion amongst the developers and even with the product owners, because they're not doing the bigger picture context that they're Mm -hmm. working within. Yeah, Everything is very bitsy. They do a backlog, but then everything gets turned into user stories. And a user story yes. is frequently very small. And it's the context yeah. that the user is exactly. in. Exactly, It's forgotten about. That is why I like the use cases with user stories. Yeah. There are many ways to handle this problem, by the way. But what you're getting down to is this. User stories is a very good structure for the development process while we are developing, but it does not provide context. So it's not a good way to store your documentation. It's much too itsy bitsy, as you put it. When you take this itsy bitsy approach, you have a backlog with a whole bunch of little things where it's not really clear what the connection is between them. And so one of the things that a business analyst brings to the table is structuring of the backlog. In other words, a large request might be, I want to be able to do something I wasn't able to do before. For example, maybe we're going to meet insurance applications. So a person can go to a site and do it all by themselves. So that's really great. But that's a big job in the backlog. So maybe we'll call this a feature. Or if it's really big, we might call it an epic. It's even bigger. And then at some point in time, as that feature starts to come up in the backlog and we're getting close to the point of actually having to work on it, we start breaking up that feature into something smaller. And those smaller things are going to be the stories. And so now you have a structure of epics to features to stories where we could make a connection. Oh, this little thing is part of a bigger thing. For example, if I say in a story that as a user, I want to be able to specify alternative address, where's the context? Is this while I'm shopping? Is this while I'm updating my profile? What am I in the midst of doing? And the beauty of a use case is that you're always attaching this request to a usage scenario, some actual use user test. Tell us what you mean by a use case. So a use case is a fancy word for a usage. So a usage of the product or a usage of the system. They can be at any level, but when I say it without qualifying it, and if I'm talking about a software product, then I'm talking about a chunk of work that a user would want to do in one session with that computer system or with that product. Some kind of goal that they would be able to achieve. They could walk away and say, hey, I did something quite useful in that one session. So for example, it might be placing an order. Just the placement of the order itself is a use case. I don't have to actually get the product because when I finish placing the order, I can feel quite comfortable and go get a coffee. I've done something quite useful now. Updating my profile, that would be a use case as well. Canceling my order, that's another use case. And how do you represent this in UML? In UML, you put a little oval for it. If it was, let's say, place an order, we would label that oval place an order, and that's the name of the use case. We would attach a little stick figure that represents the actor, the primary actor, 
That's the user who is going to be using that use case, who's going to be using that feature. And we put an arrow between them to show the connection between them. That's the graphical component. And then we start to write up text for that use case. Yeah. Jakobsen has a use case 2.0 that I would really ask your listeners to check up on. It's a really great update to the whole use case approach for Agile. The minimum that I ask people to write when I'm coaching them is brief description of what it's about. Preconditions, that's anything that should be true before the user task begins. Postconditions, which is anything that will be true when the task is over. And then the main scenarios, just a brief description of the main scenarios that would be covered, just in a few words. Beyond that, a basic flow is written. That's a series of steps. Typically, it's up to about nine steps that says the user does this, the system will do this in response, the user will do this, the system does that. And that's basically the simplest, cleanest way that a user could get through that task, assuming that they didn't make any errors. And so in an agile context, that's about as far as we might go initially. And then we might use that initial set of steps and just walk our stakeholders through it and say, well, are there any exceptional cases at this step or anything might go wrong at this step or any extra option that you'd like to include? And focus on the things that really want to be included in the very, very first release, not even necessarily a market release, but the very first release, even to a testing group, like our minimum viable product version of this feature. Yep. As they start to give us these exceptional cases, there's sections in that use case documentation called alternate flows where they describe what happens in those circumstances. And they don't have to do it in great amounts of text. A simple few words or just a little paragraph or a couple of sentences to explain it is enough, but they can do it step-by-step as well. And how do you turn use cases into user stories? So it's not as though you're writing everything up, this whole specification that I described, and then splitting it up, because that would not be very agile. Instead, we focus on the minimum basic flow, the minimum that would be required for this task to be useful. And we'd write up some of these alternate flows. And then every one of those flows becomes a user story. For example, the basic flow becomes a user story. We might assume that the normal payment would be by Visa, but an alternate flow might be pay against my account. Another alternate flow might be use my points to make a payment. Another alternate flow might be, I want a rapid delivery, so there's an extra charge for that. I want packaging, I want sign-on at the door. And so every one of those becomes a user story. Now, just the one thing I would say is that it doesn't have to be all the steps that are a user story. If we're not even sure that customers will be wanting to use this feature at all. For example, when I worked with the telecom company, one of the things they wanted to do was to allow people to customize their own plans. Interesting idea. But they didn't know if their customers would actually be interested in using it. So you could be spending a lot of money eliciting the requirements and developing a product that no one is ever going to use. This is the problem that Agile is trying to solve and that Agile analysis is trying to solve as well. So instead, you might say, all right, let's take the slimmest possible version of this feature that I could possibly imagine that would still give me a bit of a read on whether people are interested in this. So... If it's ordering something and you don't know if they want to order that kind of product or not, perhaps when they place the order, they're given an email form to fill out and they send it that way. You haven't even computerized it. You may decide that a lot of the error checking that would normally go on in this slim version, you're not going to put that in either. You'll yep. allow them to submit something with errors and a human being will do that checking and then get back to them. And so even though it's not the most efficient way to do things. It is the most efficient way in terms of not having to do very much programming and getting a result right away. 
So what I mean to say is then that you don't necessarily do all the steps in each flow. You may decide just to do a minimal number of steps in the flow. But that's the basic thing to put up the use case. Yeah, I remember doing those. I learned those from Alistair Coburn back in the 90s, and I liked it. But there is another contextual problem, which is how do the use cases fit together above that? Is that where user story mapping comes in? So in the use case approach, the answer would have been business use cases. So a business use case is an interaction not with a computer system, but with the business as a whole. Yeah. So basically, we would gather up a whole bunch of regular use cases, which I call system use cases, yep. and say that all of these participate in the same business process. They're all little pieces. You place an order, and then somebody has to fulfill the order, and somebody else has to ship the order. And those three system use cases adds up to the business use case. So this is a business process use case, is it? That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Now, a story map is really a very simplified version of that diagram. Yeah. It's like a business process model. It's like a value stream map in that it has the main activities one after the other, more or less in the order in which they are done, (laughs) except it's a very rough version in a story map. You don't have diamonds in there saying under what conditions this is done versus that is done. We're not being very careful that it has to be exactly the way that we say it. It's a rough outline of the value stream. Um, And that gives you context. So what I like is where everything all fits. In a story map, along the top part of the story map, you have the main user tasks that are being done that need to get done in that value stream, more or less in the order in which they have. But each of those tasks would take more than a sprint typically to program. So each one of those tasks, which I would call a use case, needs to be split into something smaller. And the things that they're split into are the user stories. And so the user stories get strung out on the bottom of the story map underneath the user task or the use case that they support. So it's like a table with columns, which represent the major use cases, and rows, which represent the release one, release two, release three, and you put your user stories. So the release one is super minimal, mainly mostly manual. Yes. Lots of workarounds. Yeah. And you put your use cases into row one that you absolutely have to do first pass through. Yes. And these don't have to be full releases where you could be talking about one week sprints. And not only that, but now we're doing a continuous delivery. So it's not even that it's at the end of the sprint that these things are delivered. They're being delivered throughout. As the stories are being done, they're being delivered. Now, this has a very interesting linkage back into Lean Startup, Lean UX land, because it strikes me that the minimal process is nothing is automated at all. It's just everything manual. People are doing it now. And maybe your first step is you put up a web page which sends an email. So people think they're filling out a form, but it's just sending an email. You want to hear the worst case of that? The most extreme case? Yeah, I can't remember people did it. They wanted to have a newsletter or something like that, and they wanted people to subscribe, but they didn't know if it would be worth doing. So they put up a click here to subscribe. When the person clicked, they got an error, page not found. Now, the company looked at how many of these page not found errors they got, and the more they got, the more they said, okay, yes. Not good customer service, but it's a very cheap no. way of finding out if people very want cheap. it. It's very cheap, and they did it for a brief period. You could do be a lot nicer today. The way, how we would do that today is when they click on it, they get a page that comes up and says, 
It's not available yet, but it's coming soon. Give us your name and we'll keep you up to date on what's happening. So that's a little less ugly and you still get the same information. So yeah, that's actually an MVP and nothing at all has happened. One of the companies I was working with was an insurance company with usage-based insurance. So your insurance benefits and rates and so on are determined not by those general actuarial tables that they use, but it's based upon your own individual habits. It's like how many kilometers do you drive a year type of thing? Yes, but it's much more. What time of day do you drive? Right. Because nighttime is more dangerous. What areas of the city do you drive in? How fast do you accelerate? How do you stop? So they were starting to put this in. Of course, they didn't know, are people going to go for this? You could imagine spending months getting all the requirements for this, spending a fortune developing it, and finding out that the whole product just falls flat. So the very first version of this they did was they offered this UBI to their customers. They gave them benefits immediately that they said, if you signed up for a six-month trial, you get these and these benefits, which will not go away. But they didn't actually build the program yet. So the idea was, if there weren't enough people, all right, these folks are still going to get those benefits. But we learned a tremendous amount that it wasn't worth building this program. We saved a huge amount of money. On the other hand, if it turns out that people will give up their privacy concerns, if the benefits are good, then it's worth going ahead. Yeah, that's an MVP. And yet very little was actually programmed. But you can see just how useful it is. And this is where I think the whole value is. We're talking about what's the value of a BA in general. That's all the things that you mentioned. But particularly in an agile context, what is the value? The value is to make sure that team at all times is working on work items of maximum value. Are they working on the things that are going to bring the most value to the customer base? That is really what their main value is today in an agile environment. But isn't that the role of a product owner in Scrum? So what's the relationship between the BA yeah. and the product owner? The answer to that is yes, it is. The product owner in Scrum includes what a business analyst does. It's just turned out that in practice, that's just too much to put onto one person. When the product owner came out as a role in Scrum, they really wanted to call it a product manager. That's in fact who they were thinking of. But because product managers were so associated with the waterfall approach, they had to come up with another name. Trouble is though, when you get a product manager who doesn't understand Scrum, doesn't understand business analysis, doesn't understand the structuring of requirement, all this stuff, they don't do a great job of it. And so the person who is really good at market analysis and really understands the customer is not the same person necessarily who can work really well with the team. If they are, that's fantastic. But often we're finding that's not the case. We're also finding we just don't have enough of those product manager types to go around and just have them working every day with the team when they've got a day job to do. And so we found that we need somebody else. So whether you call that person a proxy product owner, or whether you call the outward looking person a product manager and the inward looking person a product owner, or you have a product owner who is shared amongst a number of teams, which is what we often find, but doesn't do the daily work with the team. And either a proxy PO or a BA does that kind of daily work with the team. We're finding that basically what Scrum envisaged as, as a PO does need to be split generally because it's just too much to put onto one person. Yeah, I found that too. And they've acknowledged this in the Scrum Guide because they've now saying that the product owner can delegate all of these responsibilities. Yeah. Yeah. They're the product owner, but the product owner delegates. So. Yeah. Some teams I was working with recently on a machine learning product had one product owner for a team of people, but they were not able to 
define the requirements well enough for this very technical team because they didn't have enough time. They didn't have any training in any of this stuff. And so I ended up recommending that teams experiment with dedicating engineers to requirement. Basically, we just called it requirements engineer. You make everybody <laughs> happy, but pick some engineers who are good at talking to people understood what developers need and were able to do this sort of stuff. And it did help quite a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Generally, when you don't have people like this on board, what teams have been telling me is that a number of symptoms, as you mentioned, many of the big jobs don't get done because the team is focused on little itsy bitsy jobs that have to get done here and there. But a really big job, let's say we have to change the whole look and feel of the user interface across the product. These kind of jobs, they just never get done. There's never enough coordination to make that all happen. You get delays happening because if somebody has not analyzed the stories in advance of sprint planning, then when you do the sprint plan and people estimate how long it's going to take, to do the development, they're making that estimate based on a flawed understanding of what their stories actually are because they haven't been prepared properly. Well, they're trying to do the business analysis right then and there in 15 minutes in the estimation. You want the sprint planning to go quickly. And then if they do an estimation quickly, it often is a flawed estimation because it's based on a flawed understanding. Yeah. So they get delays for that reason. They get delays also because there's a misunderstanding about the requirements or you've got yeah two teams that are doing things that are connected, but they don't have the same understanding of the rules. So that's up with rework. You get inability to split features into smaller stories that deliver value. That's a very difficult thing to do. Yeah. And if they don't do well, you end up with all the stories are very large and they all end up finishing right near the end of the sprint. Well, they take multiple sprints. Yeah, that's of course even worse. But even if they just make it at the end of the sprint, when you put them all together, if there's an integration problem, you find out so late that you have to delay delivery. I find if it's not done, that there's a lot of confusion in the team about what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, it leads to a lot of rework, a lot of spinning yeah. wheels. When you come to testing, everybody's very confused about what you're supposed to be testing for. I'm advocating a lot with teams that they follow some version of the ATDD practice, yeah. acceptance-driven development, so that before they start working on the feature or even on the story, they understand what the acceptance criteria are. Is this the definition of done, Howard? I think you can say a definition of done includes testable requirements. So we're going to write acceptance criteria into our okay. user stories. Yeah. So flesh them yeah, out a sure. bit so yeah. that the requirement and the acceptance test criteria are basically the ah. same thing. And then when we're doing the development, we're just going to automate all those. Yes. So there's no test yes. phase. There's just, we develop automated test cases while we're building the code. Right. I'd actually make it both. You could make this a definition of ready. So a definition yeah. of ready would say that before people start working, to consider this to be ready for development to begin, we want the acceptance criteria defined. And if we're using the BDD approach, we would start writing them up in feature files. And then to be done, we want to know that the automated tests that need to exist do exist and they've been run successfully. Yeah, we're big fans of ATDD, continuous delivery and XP. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But the other thing too is that the team is working on the most valuable work. A lot of that also happens through this continuous negotiation that's going on that's yeah. referred to as the triad meetings, or I think there was 
used to be called the Three Amigos, but it's basically that you're continually meeting these three different parties, somebody representing the customer, like the product owner, or somebody who understands basically what's needed, who represents the developers. And so they understand the cost of what you're asking for. Somebody represents testing or understands testing so they can look for edge cases. And so that you can continually negotiate, how can we squeeze the most value for the least amount of work? And that negotiation, that's where I find particularly a BA is very key in an agile team. Or BA skills, we should say. Yeah, yeah I'm with you. The competency. So analysis is a set of skills. It's not a role. Yeah. It can be done by the product owner or by somebody in the team if the product owner can't do it. Yeah, it's about the competency. And I don't really care that much about what you call that person. The other thing I was going to say about what happens if you don't do this, Howard, apart from the team getting very confused about what they're supposed to be doing, is that the architecture gets very confused as well. People get confused about what the tables in the database should be and what the relationships mm -hmm. are. They think it's one-to-one mm -hmm. -one when it's one-to-many. And yeah, that sort of yeah. change is a big change in architecture. But anyone who's done development knows that making a cardinality change is a big deal. So yeah, it's the kind of thing you really don't want to get wrong. Absolutely. And that's why I do feel that you need people with those kind of skills to be asking those questions at the right time. I know as a developer, there are often times when I made assumptions, if it wasn't written down, that's probably this. And that's where you get stuck. How do you scale this up across multiple teams in a bigger program? Let's say you've got a hundred people, just got to mm -hmm. work on some big thing together and you've got no. 10 teams. How do you scale up this business analysis work? Yeah, they're going to probably be doing something along the lines of safe. No, hopefully you're not. Hopefully you're going to scale. You're not going to ruin it. <laughs> yeah, let's scale without ruining it with safe. All right. I think there are some good ideas in safe. I think the problem is this, when you make everything a rule that you have to do, yeah, you run into trouble. Exactly. You need to have an IP innovation and planning iteration every four or five iterations. No, you don't need to do that, but they say you do have to do it. But anyway, let's say you've got a feature coming up that's going to be complex, that's going to involve maybe different user groups. Let's say somebody's placing an order and to place that order, it involves different types of users and maybe different teams are working with those different users. So as that feature is coming up in the backlog, and if we're using Kanban, then we would just be looking feature by feature as they're coming up. If we're not doing Kanban and we're doing some sort of release planning or quarterly planning, then sometime around about halfway into the previous quarter, we start doing a little peak. And the idea is to have a, somebody like a business analyst at each level of the organization. So the reason I mentioned the ugly word safe is that although we would have a team level, but we would also have a team of teams that is involved either in a semi-permanent basis as they are in safe, or it could be on an ad hoc basis just to work on this new feature, let's say. So as you are starting to prepare this feature, maybe about halfway into the previous release, this higher level analyst who's doing this at the team of teams level, you're identifying which are the teams that are going to be involved, you're getting team commitment from them, and you're starting to write up acceptance criteria at the feature level yep. before it breaks down into stories. So this all happens at that higher level. Once you start to break this feature down into individual stories, which can be handled by individual teams, then it's the team BA who's working with them on that. Although it's often true too that you don't have a BA for every team. Instead, you have a shared BA as part of an extended team. And in which case that BA is also able to do that higher level work in between the teams because they're actually being shared between a group of, let's say, four teams, for example. Yeah. So first of all, the ideas in SAFE come from everywhere else, but 
they're not patterns that you can choose between. They're a rule book that you have to follow. So I've seen business analysts write 10 page epics four months ahead of when the team was Whoa, supposed to no, do it because no, 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 no. you've got to have these things prepared for your PI so that people can plan them and they do them in a siloed team and everything. SAFE is very accommodating of waterfall ways of working. And so people tend to do it that way. Yeah. Yeah. And if you talk to the people who develop SAFE, they'd probably tell you they're doing it all wrong. The problem doesn't begin with SAFE. The problem really begins with Scrum, if you want to get down to it. SAFE is built on Scrum, whether they say so or not. It's really Scrum with an extra layer added on top. Scrum itself is extremely inflexible. If you're a Scrum master, you have to be doing Scrum exactly as advertised. I just read recently that if you're a Scrum master, you're not allowed to teach any competing form of Agile. Yeah, I've seen the Scrum Alliance contracts that say that. They say that if you want to be a Scrum Alliance certified Scrum trainer, you can't be a Scrum trainer for a competitor. And their competitors are defined as Scrum.org, Scrum at scale and safe, but not IC Agile. They seem okay with that. I see. And what about if you want to Teach XP. They only care about people who are selling Scrum Master certifications or other things that use their particular terminology. They don't care about XP certifications because people aren't selling them, so it's no competition. Agile has to be agile. My approach has always been in my coaching and in my books. Here's a toolkit. These are some really useful techniques. Here is where you're going to find them useful. Here is where they're less useful. Encourage you to experiment and be agile about agile and see what works for you and what doesn't work for you. And that's what you go by. That's more important than anything else. That's absolutely the key. Be agile about agile. Use agile to implement agile. <laughs> exactly. That 15 minute stand up meeting might not work for you. All right. Why do you have to have that imposed on you if it's not working and you find another way works much better? Yeah, I agree. There are problems with Scrum. The problems are overcome by it being very short, but when you scale up to three months sprints, yeah. then they become difficult. So I find that people that come from a business analyst role make the most awesome Scrum coaches. Now, your experience and why do you think that is? I don't know if I could make that general rule, but I would not be surprised. Because there's a lot of overlap between what a scrum coach or a scrum master does and what a BA does. For example, just communicating the process and making sure that people are following it properly is something that BAs are actually really good at and have been doing for a while. I don't know if you've any of you seen the latest IBA Nimble report, no. but they found that when BAs are in a leading role, adherence to the agile framework itself is quite high. And when yeah. you don't have a BA in a leading role, it's actually quite low. They've also found that 73% of the most nimble companies have BAs in a leading role. And conversely, 69.6% .6 of the least nimble companies do not have a BA in a leading role. And by BA, I mean somebody who's practicing business analysis. There's an interesting correlation there, for sure. BAs tend to have very good people skills. Yeah. And they also really understand process. They're analytical. And that's the combination that you need as a Scrum Master. And as a product owner, too, I would say. Yeah, yeah. You weren't ever a BA, were you, Shane? So I came out of pre-sales, which had the same set of skills as a business analyst. Uh, if I mapped my skills in that role with a BA role, they were the same skills. 
We just used it for evil. We didn't really care about what the requirements were. We just mapped the solution to some requirements you might have had. It's amazing how we always match 80% of the customer's requirements, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it's amazing how 80% of the things they never want to do is the things we convince them they need to do. You want one person to be able to join multiple unions? Oh, that's just a stupid business process. Nobody does that. No customer we've had on that. Otherwise, it's, oh, that's just a few line of code. We'll put that in for you. Oh, yeah. Because the person who promises that is not the person who's going to have to write that code. I can't tell you it's my as being on the developer side, having the pre-sales people promise all sorts of things, never having checked with us beforehand. Never confused selling with implementing. This is what VA should be doing. And this is, by the way, the whole thing really about why Agile is better in many ways than the waterfall approach. With the waterfall approach, you had the illusion that because you're writing up all these detailed requirements and you're getting signature that you are now secure, but it's really just an illusion, as you've been saying. In Agile, you replace that illusion with actual control because we are continuously delivering working software and we're getting your response. And if we are way off, you're going to know about it pretty soon. There's that immediate course correction. All right, Shane, let's go to summaries. What have you got? Okay, so we started out with answering the first question, really, which is in the world of Agile, as the business analyst disappeared, the BA skills and competencies are still valuable, even if the role doesn't exist in any formal org chart. We then talked about subject matter experts and the idea that can a subject matter expert provide those BA skills? And I may be able to tie my own necktie, but I can't teach you how to do it. So that elicitation, that explanation, that ability to distill complexity down into simplicity that somebody else can understand, that's the core of the skills that a BA typically has. I'm glad you said that Moscow is a way of prioritization sucks and you should never do it. But what we really care about is what do we want to do first? What do we want to do second? What do we want to do third? I've just written up the chapter of prioritization in my book, and that's what it's all about. There's a window of time. Tell me what's first, second, and third. Once I get yep. to third and I'm done, tell me what's first, second, and third. I don't care how much of it's a must. Because if you give me 80% of them a must, we know that by the end of it, you're not getting 80% of them done. Yeah, we will shortcut it. And it's the value, but also divided by the effort. Everybody wants great things, but that's also how much does it cost. Yeah. And then I love the idea that the business analyst skills provide a shared language. Often the shared language is back to the stakeholder to get confirmation. Yeah. That's a skill that we need. I like the idea that it's the least amount of documentation without doing harm. And also that we hold the work until the last responsible moment. And then the last one for me was a use case is a fancy term for usage. Customer places order, customer pays for order, store ships order, customer returns product. Their use cases, their usage. It was a good conversation for me around the core of business analysis hasn't changed. Yeah. Skills, not roles. Murray, what do you got? Yeah, I was a business analyst for many years, and I think it's very valuable when it's done well. I see a lot of teams not having a BA role or somebody who's doing business analysis, and they get very confused about what they're doing and how to know whether it's done and what the architecture should be. So what ends up happening is that somebody else steps in and tries to do it. So the product owner might try and do it or the software architect or the team lead or UX designers will often start doing it because it needs to be done regardless of whether you have somebody called a business analyst or not. Somebody mm -hmm. 
in that team needs to be able to flesh out the business process that we are automating with software. What are the use cases within that business process, which is things like create a user or add a insurance case or update an insurance claim. And then what are the user stories, which are the small parts of the use case that we can slice off and give to a team to build within a couple of weeks. It absolutely has to be done. Somebody has to do it at some point. It's part of good product development, good system development practice. If you don't do it, you get yourself into a terrible mess, but it does not have to be done with a big requirements document three months up front. That in fact leads to quite bad outcomes and frequently people don't read Mm -hmm. them. It gives you the illusion of fixing the requirements so that you can contract people to deliver them and sue them if they don't. But it never Mm. works that way because there is always a lot of changes because it's not possible to know all of the requirements 100% accurately upfront. It's simply impossible. Product development and software development is a process of learning what's needed as you go. I was working with a large financial company and you would think that this was one where you would really would know what the requirements are. It was a compliance project. They had to put in some reporting features and various tracking features so that they would comply with government regulations in order to take on consultancy work from the government. So you'd think that this is pretty, pretty straightforward, right? Turned out there was also a lot of gold plating on that. Once they started to put the requirements together, any manager who would seen any kind of a product which had lovely features they just added it into the requirements, even though it wasn't really needed for compliance with the government. And so this idea from Agile of really focusing on the minimum marketable product, the minimum marketable features turned out to be very helpful for them. Yeah, I think so too. And also gold plating the requirements means that you're going to gold plate the architecture and the design and everything is going to be 10 times bigger than it needs to be because some manager saw it in some product somewhere and said it was a must have. Yeah. And a lot of those little extras turn out to be the most expensive thing in the entire system and they're not even needed. Yeah. Right? So we know from research by the Standish Chaos Group and also more recently yeah. by Pendo that 70 to 80% of the product features we build are rarely or never used. Yeah. I'll give you one quick example. A company that was working for one of the provincial governments here it was a, basically an incident management system that they were putting in. And The most expensive part of it was for very serious incidents that happened where they had to connect to external systems to contact the police, other levels of government, and so on. It turned out that incidents of that type were so rare, and they really did require human intervention, that there was really no need to put them in the system and put them in the product. And yet they were the most expensive aspects of the product. Yeah. Mind you, if you're Accenture, though, that's great. They're paying 10 times more than that. Right, exactly. So I think that there is a lot of uncertainty in all software projects, even ones which are re-platforming. It was on Sun, build it again on Oracle. There's still considerable uncertainty because people are always changing what they understand, what it did before and people have forgotten. I would say an agile approach is always better. The other thing is, as you said, It's a really great way to focus on what's really important. You do your high level user story map, you identify your use cases and what are your minimal stories. You work on those first. Maybe you mock them up as UX prototypes and test them. Yeah. 
you get that feedback and that learning straight away and you use that to refine what you're doing. And then you can really focus on what delivers the most value for money. And that is really important because projects or products or war initiatives always have a limited amount of time and money. And there's always mm -hmm. more scope than you can possibly do. Yes. So it's very important that you do this constant prioritization and that you allow space and time to learn as you go. That's right. So you should never fix that plan. You're learning as you go means that you're giving yourself that room to respond to what you learn and make changes to the plan as you go. It might be a small thing like changing the acceptance criteria on a feature and making it a little bit more minimal. It might be dropping feature altogether. And it could be even much more than that. It might be a total pivot on the product itself. Yeah. I think Agile is actually very good at delivering to a goal within a t fixed time and budget because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you can keep the scope variable. You've got a team of 10 people for six months and we want to yeah. achieve this goal and yeah. it has these measurable yeah. outcomes. There's so many ways of doing it that if we just focus on the most important things, we can always be sure to get there. Yeah, we focus on the outcome, but as far as the actual features, they may change over time. Yeah. Yeah. So, for example, if somebody says, I want search in my product, search, depending on how you define it as a requirement, could be free because it's out of the box, or it could be $10 billion because it's Google. Yes, exactly. Yeah. How much money yeah. have you got? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So this has been good. I think it's such a shame that the business analysis is missing from a lot of teams and it needs to come back. It's a very important skill. There is good training now. For instance, you offer training, don't you, Howard? Yeah. So actually we're doing a workshop with IT Works out of Belgium. If people just follow me on LinkedIn. They'll find out about it. I've got my own book, The Agile Guide to Business Analysis and Planning, which walks you through the initial idea for a product all the way down to the detailed stories as you start to develop it. Just basically what kind of techniques you would use at every step along the way of uh, developing that product. You follow a case study along the way as well with that book. So you can actually just work hands on with it if you want as well, if you want to get that deep. So yeah, I did that really to try to help people in this position. I looked at techniques across all of these methodologies that you spoke about at the beginning of our talk, Lean Startup, MVP, Kanban, and of course, Scrum and so on. And trying to put all those together into a coherent picture for people and give them the choices of what kind of techniques to use when. That's great. And your website, Howard? So the website is www.nobleinc.ca, N-O-B-L-E-I-N-C.ca. Okay. And people can find you on LinkedIn as well. Howard Pedeswa. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That's great. Thanks for coming on, Howard. Great. It's been a pleasure. That was the No Nonsense Agile Podcast from Murray Robinson and Shane Gibson. If you'd like help to create high-value digital products and services, contact murray at evolve.co. That's Evolve with a zero. Thanks for listening.